0: rainy Long Beach uh, California um, at the Western Pool and Spa show and so we're back for part three of waterproofing so uh, back with Ken Milbury and sorry I keep doing it damp proofing (laughs) Um, uh, but I really do encourage you to go back um, because we're we're building each of these episodes uh, builds on The foundation of the last one and this one and especially the next one we're gonna do part four and maybe even part five depends how far we get Um, you're really gonna have to have the foundation of of what we're gonna be talking about to kind of understand this Um, so
1: introduce yourself Ken and um, my name is Ken Milbury I'm the director of technical services for Lunata Bay Tile and you, you
0: work for a manufacturer, uh, but you're also one of the experts in the industry. I mean, you've, you've come through Pool Corp, I mean, you've, you've bounced around, you've been in a number of different places and, and not because you're can't hold a job. Um, <laughs> more because you, you just you've ingested all of this. And so you, you've really waterproofing is a passion of yours, like nobody else that I know of in the industry.
1: Um, talk about your background a little bit. So my background a little bit, and the reason this became such a, a big part of you know me moving through my career was back in the days about 15 years ago, I started seeing you know waterproofing and damp proofing as an actual need for pool builds, and we were seeing failures. Mm. So I dug deep into it to fi- to try to find out what was causing the failures, and then how we could avoid these failures in the future because. When damp proofing fails on some of the projects that we were working on, it is a costly failure. So tell me a little bit about the failures that you were seeing, and uh, let's,
0: let's start there. Because this whole episode, we're, we're out of the theory, we're out of the definitions, we're getting in the pool shell today. And so what were the theories that you or the, the, the failures that you were seeing?
1: Well, number one, we were seeing water penetration into structure, meaning into living space. Um, that was number one. We were seeing a lot of not only actual water, but we were actually seeing efflorescence and calcification in the structure itself. Mm. Um, we were seeing entire ent- entire walls delaminating. We were seeing plaster floors delaminating. Um, we were seeing a lot of what we would c- call construction failure. Um, on the job site and this would lead to you know water penetration into the home water penetration next to the home and we were seeing loss of water in excess of 4000 gallons a day
0: hmm. crazy and you know that was kind of the time frame too when infinity edge pools really kind of started to get a foothold in and more of mainstream uh, and, and the efflorescence and the water wicking through the shells and, and whole infinity edge, you know, faces falling off and
1: delaminating and, and looking like crud six months later. Right. We were seeing some some very long linear walls. Um, people were starting to push the envelope of negative edge technology and actually, you know, putting these walls on radiuses, but mainly about structures so and 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 this you know like i said this is a situational thing where probably the top one percent of pools get built above structure the rest of them though we were still seeing effects where they were next to structure and water was actually pulling into the home yeah and so it doesn't pertain to just being over a structure you know if you're anywhere around a structure the water if there's a let's just say there's a basement or the dwellings attached you know within five six feet of the pool those areas or voids were becoming full of water and actually penetrating into the living space. And, you know, like you said,
0: I, I like how you brought it up. Um, architects are really, I mean, we're seeing it right now. Architects are playing with water like crazy. Uh, and, and in the high end, um, which is kind of where you and I live a lot, they're really, really pushing the envelope. But, but just like anything, you know, the technology that Mercedes-Benz developed ends up in a Camry in a few years. And, and uh, so architecturally, you know, everybody sees the pretty pictures in the magazines and they start bringing that down into more, you know, more traditional type backyards without necessarily the understanding. And so, um,
1: yeah, I, I think we're seeing a lot of that too. Right, what we were seeing back in the earlier days is, is water and transit over negative edges. But now, not just through plumbing water and transit, we're seeing it on Lautner edges, you know, the perimeter overflows. We're seeing raised spas and bond beams. We're seeing huge acrylic panels. Um, we're seeing raised, you know, completely four sided raised perimeter pools that have negative edges. Um, what The design is being pushed to the envelope, and we're seeing new materials. We're seeing, you know, acrylics come in to play lately. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot of acrylic pools. So as materials change, so does the damp proofing technology we need to actually think about the actual materials that are going into the build and then match the damp proofing up to the finished materials
0: so you are technical officer for a tile manufacturer correct Um, so i imagine that you see a lot of uh the problem pools um where your material is installed uh and Talk to me about uh, the most common mistakes that you're seeing um, a, as a manufacturer. What are the, what are the consistent mistakes? Not, not necessarily in a $10 million home, but the mistakes that you're seeing a lot of pool guys do
1: on a, on a $40,000 backyard build. I'm going to tell you that the number one, it doesn't really relate to damp proofing, but it relates to materials. Hmm. So when we talk damp proofing, damp proofing is you know, basically what we call a building material. The number one thing we see is non-adherence to cure times. Hmm. Um, non-adherence to cure times is, is most often likely one of the components to a failure. Um, the other one is the misuse of damp-proofing material in a system or systems.
0: Yeah, and that's the the, um, the, the cure time thing. There's so few people that know that. It, it, it To me, it almost feels like, we're, I think we're getting the word out better these days. Uh, but even five years ago, outside of overstructure pools um you know, with
1: million dollar tile jobs, nobody even talked about cure times and so it's well, I think they did. I think they always talked about the cure time of the shell itself well yeah, true, okay so people knew what cure times were mm-hmm. and people knew that they had to adhere to them you know, wet cure fourteen days, dry cure twenty eight and but they don't think the same when it comes to the materials that are going onto the pool as a finish so or a system for a finish. Um, people tend to think that, and, and the one thing I saw was what I used to call the tile merry-go-round, which was the complete system in a four-hour period, grouted, plastered the next day, and the pool filled. Mm-hmm. Which, let's be very clear, that does not meet any standard or recommendation within the tile or the pool industry. Yeah, and it, it, for no manufacturers, it's not. It, it, no, it's, it's
0: not like Lenata Bay has these unattainable standards. This is kind of
1: across the board, right? I, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the tile manufacturer because the setting material manufacturers, right. they know their material. They're stating their cure times. They're stating their water ratios. You know their mix ratios. They're, they they basically have done all the testing. We take their information and just apply it to the best way to install our tile. But basically, when you're talking glass tile, there's one standard, and most of the manufacturers follow that, which is P602.
0: Yep, and that's being updated regularly. I mean, it's still a bit of a fluid document. It just, it, I know you're working to update it again and, and clarify it a little bit more. It's getting better, uh, but you know, over the years, that document has been a little bit of a challenge just because it, it was so rigid and it, didn't, it couldn't be applied in certain situations properly.
1: Well, this, one of the biggest misnumbers, and this is something that I always talk to people about, is that when I'm doing a glass tile seminar or teaching people how to install glass tile in a pool, it's not just for glass tile. It's actually right. for stone, porcelain, ceramic. It's for all finishes that are tile, that put into that assembly, not just glass. So the glass manufacturers aren't going outside the box and saying it has to be installed this way. It's all tile. And we see very few pools that are installed to that standard, but that document is very fluid. Um, 2012, I think was the latest chain, no, probably 2014. Um, I'm dating myself. Um, it was 2018, and I'm sorry, um, that we added colloidal silicate because more people were treating their shells. So in order for you know the colloidal products to be included in a system, we put it into the document that that was acceptable for use in the substrate, and that wasn't there before. So this is, you know, a constantly evolving. Yes, um, personally, I'm working with some manufacturers and guys to to make some changes to it because there's some things that aren't addressed in it, mm-hmm. um, especially with the non-permeable membranes. So let's,
0: let's get back into a little bit. You know, we're in the pool shell. Um, colloidal silicates, we, we've touched on them. We've kind of defined them. So I don't want to really go back there. But um, you know, let's, let's talk about that because you have pretty strong opinions on that. You, you feel like every pool should be treated with that. And the reality is, is there's a lot of good systems out there on the market. This is not a new thing. It's new new to the pool industry uh, but these products have been around since the 50s i believe and and they're great products and you
1: there there are systems out there that can be installed by anybody well i want to say when i first got into the pool and when i really I, i've been in the pool industry a long time either as a contractor or owning my own business but when i went to work for mpt here at the western pool show which i'm going to guess it's just let's just say a long time um <laughs> Ocuron was holding certified applicator training for their collodial silicate. Mm. So that's been, that's been a good 18 years. Um, And there was a good group or handful of of pool builders, including Greg Andrews, including, you know, a lot of the, the old, you know, the pool builders that Mm -hmm. actually kind of started taking this technology to the next level. Um, We're sitting in that class and that's where I really started, you know, grasping onto this technology and saying, okay, you know, if we are going to make the actual shell better, shouldn't be any, you know, we should be actually promoting this. And that's why when we started defining terms, we classified it as a treatment because actually it adds benefits to an already existing shell. So you're pouring a shell. We add a treatment to it. Um, and so that's why I think every shell if you're going to, you know, make the the concrete matrix or the actual, you know, product better, we should be doing it and it's actually affordable. Yeah. And not every shell though. Because not every shell.
0: A shell that has integral, you can't. And 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 this isn't correct. It, but this is where I feel like this podcast and these series that we're doing is so hypercritical because The first failure that I had um, was many, many years ago, and I was just starting to morph my way into higher echelon builds of pools. And so, you know, I'm that
1: guy that says, well, if it should be two inch, two and a half is better, and three inch is gonna be the best. So you're thinking, if if I can put integral and throw a topical on the top, it's gonna make it even better. Well, I even (laughs) went more than that. I did a integral and a
0: topical, and then I put a rigid cementitious, and then I put hydroband, uh, a a a, um, a membrane on top of that. And guess what? Over. The slabs Over. fell off the wall. The plaster fell off. It, you know, it, it was. Yeah. And, and was... so, so let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that because you can't do collodial silicate in within with a crystalline matrix uh, such as a zypex or a kim or, or a Krypton, some of those or
1: some of those that are, that are out there. Yeah. Um, there are different types of treatments that you can do the shell and we've actually lumped both of those into the category but again being an overachiever is not always better exactly um a matter of fact I think we talked about this in one of our podcasts where I actually saw a system recently where there was redundant waterproofing within the system there was 16 layers of damp proofing Oh gosh. in succession starting with an integral going to a collodial going to a um, what we call a fluid applied or a non-permeable membrane. And then it went to another manufacturer's complete system and ended up with a bond code. Hmm. And I'm thinking this is a recipe for disaster because not only is nothing going to start bonding, but every plane you put on in succession, now you stand another chance for a failure. So more's always not better but you need to find out what these materials, what their their properties are, and what their reactions are. Um, that's why I like the. For me, Integral is is, is a great pot product. Um, I Meaning as IPEX or, a or yeah, and they've been proven because they, mm-hmm. they're actually mixed into the matrix. What if it's Gunite? It's a little more difficult to do. Um, but if it's Shotcrete, they're mixed into the plants. They go through a number of revolutions. They're actually part of the process. Mm-hmm. In that, the other thing is is you don't know how well they're dispersed within the shell. So basically, it's invisible to you where those products are. They're supposed to be throughout, but I can tell you in my history, I have actually seen pores where there has been sporadic because maybe they didn't rotate the drum long enough, or they only went through 20 revolutions, and it didn't get dispersed throughout the entire you know, 9 or 10 cubic yards. Mm-hmm. So you got spots that were concentrated in other spots that had really nothing it was you know it was not we couldn't find it let's just say that it was probably in there but it wasn't to a to a dose where we could find it so for me I always go back to if I can see it when I'm applying it then I know it's there
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah one of the things that I think it's still an industry debate
0: uh, and I don't I've heard it I have not experienced it personally uh, but when you're talking integrals, uh, it's crystalline. Uh, and so with the introduction of water, you get the crystals build up. And I have heard of guys having failures, uh, delamination failures on their finish coats. My question has always been, why was the water getting through in the first place to allow the crystalline? But it can be water migrating through from the back. So, um, you know, again, this is, I'm, I've personally strayed away from integrals because of the potential that I've heard. Do you, can you enlighten me a little bit on that?
1: Well, I can give you just a real quick kind of easy scenario to think of is that we're putting an integral water, you know, mix into the shell and then basically what do we do for the first 14 days cure it with water we moisture cure it well the way these these crystalline type products work is they take the water they basically form a hard crystal and they're forcing the water out of the shell so these crystalline structures actually form towards the outside of the shell hmm. so you're curing it for 14 days you're creating or starting this actual reaction and now they're on the outside so if you don't do anything for preparation, if you don't clean them off, sandblast them, you know, water blast them, grind them, and then you go to put another coating on the top of it, which by the way, most of the coatings we put over the top of those are mixed with water. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're you're not mixing, we're actually taking any type of cementitious materials mixed with water. So when we go to bind these things, they're actually, the crystalline is mixing with the water so you're, the bond becomes less. Sure. So these these structures tend to grow out. Now they will also grow back if we have high water tables, we have negative side pressure, water on the backside of the shell. These types of things will actually go both directions. So when you're thinking about your next coating, you have to think about the properties as being mixed with water, water mixes to form the crystalline, and, and so forth. So um, I have always been the same as you. I have not been a fan because, number one, I can't see it. Number two, every every step we take after this is has some water in it, and so we're actually creating these crystals. We're actually, you know, making the material do its job. Mm-hmm. But these actually tend to detour bond down the road. Yeah, and so
0: we still do do it. Um, recently, we poured an underground vault. Uh, we shot an underground vault, and I mixed it in there because we knew. It's under a lawn area. I knew there was going to be a lot of irrigation water in that, but I'm not worried in that situation. I'm not having to veneer it. I'm not putting tile on. And so so we still do it on occasion, but I've just moved away from doing it within a pool shell. And then the other thing is it also then limits what you're doing afterwards Correct. because there there is incompatibility. And I really want to touch on that because we kind of jumped over it. The The... The biggest thing that I learned with my first failure is that you have incompatibilities, and I've been preaching this for a number of years. The manufacturers all want all of us to be successful, and, and I feel like a lot of people get scared to call a technical advisor, um, and, and it's your job to help me do it properly. Um, and and you want me to be as successful as I want to be. And so call your reps, get to know the people for the systems that you use. because then when you do have a weird question, we have one right now that we're, you know, we had to sandwich floats and we had to sandwich waterproofing, which is, you know, potentially not a good thing, but we were able to work with the manufacturer and say, okay, we can use these products and in this situation, we will certify it, but and all it was was a
1: conversation. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. I think this boils down to a real simple statement that I always tell people: is that most technical advisors that work for manufacturers, they want to be ninety nine percent proactive, and they want to be one percent reactive. So we want to proactively help and work with the builders, so they, you know, basically up front, we're talking them through the process. So we don't have to be reactive. Yeah. And I would rather spend, and you know, I spend a lot of days on the road, traveling, teaching, training, to be proactive with our products, to be proactive in the industry, the pool industry, to be proactive in the damp-proofing industry. Um, reactive is never a good place for a builder, for a technical guy, for a homeowner. You don't ever wanna have a homeowner reactive. Yeah. So <laughs> so like I said, it brings up a good point. Call, if you have a question, reach out to the manufacturer. There is no such thing, just so you guys know, is a stupid question. Yeah, yeah. and the
0: biggest thing, too, is there are a lot of incompatible materials. And you don't, don't make an assumption that just because brand X is used by everybody in the industry and brand Y is as well, that brand X and Y can be used together because that's really where you can start
1: to get into a lot of issues as well right exactly i mean we we've talked about systems and and you and i both know and we've talked about this a lot that we like systems technology we like less manufacturers within the system because that means if we ever have to be reactive there's less guys pointing fingers at each other on the deck but if you're going down that road reach out and ask Um, Get it in writing. The big thing for me is always, no matter what the conversation you have verbally on the phone with the technical advisor, ask for backup in writing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because you need to put that into your construction documents as basically just a CYA. Yep.
0: Yeah. Heaven forbid you have a failure. You know, we all hope we don't. Every
1: once in a while, you know, something happens. Things happen. Yeah. I mean... I don't know about this, but I'll just tell you, if you find me a contractor that hasn't had a failure, I mean, I'll be very honest, I'm in the position I'm in now, because if I, I mean, I would have no fingers on my hand if if they took a finger for every failure I had. But the reason I'm where I am now is because, as a contractor, I kept digging into the science. Mm -hmm. And I found that learning about this stuff and stopping my failures, but you know, when things happened, I wanted to know why. So I dug deep into them and I was spending more time researching products than I actually was building. So I ended up in, you know, this position is perfect for me because I still get to carry on with my research and my study and my testing. And, and you know, I have resources to actually, you know, create testing for compatibility and products that you may not or anybody else may not think that they would work together. But until we have testing, we'll never know. Right all right so let's jump back into the pool shell
0: so um your 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 shell treatment of choice whether that be integral or uh, let's go down the road of of a colloidal silicate
1: uh so um right so let's just let's just we'll jump back in this real quick but my belief is that all shells should be treated Mm -hmm. Um, for the simple fact of corrosion resistance for the actual compression we actually get a denser shell with these integral and There's a lot of benefits to that. So where damp proofing, and I almost said it, where damp proofing (laughs) is situational, meaning it has to be in certain parts of the pool, but if you're doing an all plaster pool in ground, not attached. So I would say if you have an actual correctly shot shell with a integral or a, you know, basically let's just call it a shell treatment, Mm -hmm. that would be the extent of your damp proofing at that point. There's really no need because, you know, we're not going to get a whole lot of moisture transmission through that shell, yeah So at that point, we're now we go into situational. Once we have and we come up to the thing that, hey, it's better to treat all these shells, find a good product, find one out there, one that you're comfortable with. Every shell should be treated. Now, I'll move on to say, from here on, it's situational mm-hmm. well, and and before we leave that,
0: you know, the integral waterproofings, they're expensive. Uh, You know, some of them cost me upwards of $100 a yard. Uh, And so that's, money has not been a driver for me on that. Uh, But for me, I feel like a topical colloidal silicate or something, uh, not only is it a fraction of the cost, I can do it myself and there's I don't we, we don't have the the potential delamination issues. Uh, so that's I I agree with you. It's well, such an it's such a simple thing. It's a few hours um, you know, and it helps the curing and it, it holds the water in and you just get a better
1: product. Yeah, the out benefits of it too. are there. But also with the collodials, we've also seen a tendency with them to actually increase the bond of oh, the venture on yeah. top of it. So I don't know if we touched on that in one of the previous ones but where we've seen in some of the integrals is that we actually have a loss of bond with the colonials we've actually seen an increase in bond. So if we're going to talk, you know, on on even even table, even fair, you know, a fair playing field, I'm a big integral guy just because I want to ensure a better bond for every layer that goes on top of my shell. No, you're a you're not an integral guy. You're you're. I'm, I'm sorry. A topical I'm, guy. I'm a topical guy. I'm yeah. a, I'm a colloidal guy.
0: Yeah, um, a little applied.
1: So I'm going to ask the
0: fifty thousand dollar question: Is colloidal? And I'm going to use the, the the term in the industry. If I just spray my shell colloidal silicate uh, of choice, do I now have a waterproof shell? Am I good? I can just
1: stick glass tile to it. Okay, well, you never will have a waterproof shell based on the definition. So the answer is no. Will you have a damp-proof shell? No. Um, I would say, in the rare case that this shell was shot completely consolidated, compacted, very little voids, you know, capillaries or everything is tight. There's no voids in it. With 62 and, and degrees way, and you have, cloudy and 80% humidity. Yeah. And absolutely zero <laughs> penetrations. Right. Okay. Because every penetration you have has a cold joint. It's been proven. I've never, ever seen a pool with a penetration that does not have a cold joint. So, no, you do not have a damp proof shell at that point. And you'll never have a waterproof shell. And you'll never have a waterproof <laughs> shell. Okay,
0: so, so let's move to kind of the next, uh, the next way out. So, if we're following P602, you're, now we've treated the shell... Uh, Let's move our way out through a typical tile matrix. And let's just start with, um, you know, just your basic. We're not worried about being over the, you know, the client's $8 million Rembrandt. Um, You know, we're just in a normal. And
1: And I think we touched on this in the last one is that basically it's a system. Okay. So it goes right now. Currently, the cementitious waterproofing is still in the number one slot and it is not an optional. So the first thing that goes onto the shell where you're applying a tile band or a strip or a feature wall is actually cementitious waterproofing, which falls into the rigid category. So this would be a rigid cementitious waterproofing. Okay. Okay. These would be, and I tend not to use the word thereseal because you know BASF has been in and out. So we're talking rigid cementitious. So we're actually talking single or dual component but fairly rigid not flexible not an anti-fracture but a rigid waterproofing once that is cured and i'm going to use these terms because yes they all have to you always have to you know adhere to your cure times no more of the merry-go-round tile setting where we're you know actually setting routing and filling these pools we got to start adhering to our cure times on top of that goes your bonded mortar bed. On top of that is your optional damp-proofing membrane. They still call it waterproof in the documentation. And then on top of that is your thin set tile grout. So let me ask you this: um,
0: where that waterproofing sits, how critical is that? Because you said, you know, right under your thin set, that one's optional. If you have it there, can, can you move it
1: out off of the shelf? See, this is a great topic, because you actually brought up, this is where I kind of differ from the industry. Cementitious waterproofing is protecting us from negative side intrusion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When we actually build a mortar bed out, we want to stop that because negative side intrusion is going to actually add water absorption to the mortar bed, which is going to cause expansion and contraction. Okay. If you don't have the flexible one to help take up some of that movement, even though it's optional, in my opinion, that is the most important damp-proofing. It, it, not even in that, it's important as an anti-fracture membrane. Because yeah. that's where we're going to get the movement. We're going to get the movement out towards the actual final finish, the tile, you know, whatever we're using, tile, stone, or anything like that.
0: So the, the situation you just said, that's essentially what we just went to the manufacturer on, because we do have a, a job right now where we're sitting over the top of the structure. The entire pool shell has been waterproofed. Damp-proofed. But damp-proofed. Um, multiple, we won't even get into that. That'll be the next podcast. Um, but uh, as we're, so, so we've got the flexible cementitious membrane on the, or, I guess membrane is not the right term, but we have a flexible cementitious on the entire shell. So we're going to be building a float on top of that and I know from experience that efflorescence happens in a number of different places. It'll happen, it'll come out of any cement-based product and so number one I don't necessarily want to be adhering directly to an unprotected float because you do run that risk of water getting in there and efflorescing out the grout. But then also, like you said, I want that anti-fracture, um, you know, that little bit of ability for movement, but you get into a real challenge where if you're doing damp-proofing, float, damp-proofing again, the the manufacturers
1: really frown on that. Um, it's, the sandwiching, yeah, yes. so, so if we would have been proactive and I was still working in Southern California and not living in North Carolina, I would have highly, I would have actually pushed you and told you that please float out the pool, float everything out, and then go over the top of it with your, your, your membrane. I would have said actually put that membrane on the outside and then fully encapsulate everything. But now you were just saying, though, it, it, well, this one's above
0: structured, so we don't really have right. water intrusion. But it, again, it gets back into everything goes situational. Once, once the shell is done, every situation
1: is very unique. Um, right. And that's the thing is as you walk a job, you kind of try to identify what I call the critical areas. But if I can have a single plane waterproofing that's that basically is from start to finish and all i have to do is apply my final finishes over the top of it now i know that i have one damp proofing that is consistent throughout the whole project and i'm not having any voids or what we call tie-ins so when you get a tie-in that brings a whole different set of Challenges. challenges into play so what i do is try to get everything ready before the finish and then we'll go over the top of it with a water, you know, a damp-proofing product, and that way, you know, and most likely in those cases, you know me well, it's going to be a flexible cementitious or mm-hmm. an anti-fracture with anti-fracture capabilities. I want the rigid next to the rigid, so we've to break this down: we have a rigid shell, we have rigid mortar bed. So if we go rigid, 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 and then we have materials that move, or flex, or expand and contract, we that's where we want the flexible. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people. I think get it reverse and they go semi-rigid, you know, or flexible, and then they go to rigid and it's kind of backwards because sure. where you want it to move now it can't move. Yeah. So every project is different, but I try when I'm consulting and, and talking to people about this is we want that single sheet consistent throughout the entire. So, you would have done all your penetrations. You would have gone through and treated every single penetration, your skimmer, your light niches, anything you had in the project, all your drains, okay? Treated them, and then we would have floated, and then we would have gone over the entire pool with the flexible cementitious membrane.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the reason why we went this direction here, because we did explore floating first. Um, this job is still a year from <laughs> setting finishes uh, but the ceilings in the living space below are open and we can see them and they haven't started hanging finishes in the interior of the house and we wanted to do a flood test and and this thing's been filled with it's water perfect. for a month so that we could actually stand in the bedroom and look up and see if we had any issues uh, plus we also the the pool cantilevers and so we were looking for deflection angles and that and we wanted to make sure that when we finished
1: it everything finished out perfect and and this might not be bad because here's the great thing if anything's going to move in the next year it's going to leave you a roadmap to what you're going to have to fix sometimes it's actually better to do it because if anything's going to happen when it's in this situation because now you've got it vulnerable to to environment Mm -hmm. it's going to expand and contract more than we'll ever do when it has water in it right and now you'll see where it's going to move and where you may have to add additional movement provisions. Yeah. So there's always plus and minuses. And like I said, every job is situational. Yeah. So you have to look at every job differently and look at the critical components and count the number of, you know, penetrations you have because those are all very costly to, to dam proof. That's, a, that's another seven or eight part system. Mm-hmm. You know, if... And we haven't even gone into, you know, your pools where I still think link seals going through all the pipes, I still think you should have water stops, you know, in poured into, shot into the shell. You know, there's a lot of these things that we call advanced techniques that I hope someday we can get out into a site and walk a site mm-hmm. from beginning to end. And, and basically, because visual will show a lot. The, um, But yeah i totally understand why you did it and it's probably a good thing because now it's going to lead you a roadmap to see where you may need additional provisions and and we'll get into it in next
0: episode but we've also got double containment and we've got you know i mean that's that's kind of next level stuff so i want to kind of pull it back into your traditional backyard
1: let's just make that we can end the conversation with damp proofing should always be primary secondary and backup Belt and suspenders. Belt and suspenders. So we'll leave it at that, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Yeah, because this is... We've
0: only just talked about a third of the waterproofing, the damp proofing that happened on this particular project. So, okay, so let's go back. And this is an honest question for me. Based on P602, you had said, you know, a rigid cementitious directly to the shell. Um, Does a colloidal not eliminate that? Because that's always been the, the area where I'm confused,
1: and is that a place where P602 hasn't caught up yet, or what's... I, I don't think that's the case. I think for some of the, and I'm going to classify myself as somebody that with the older school of thought, I want to stop all negative side intrusion. Whether the... it, you th- there is some there or there's not. At some point in time, there may be. And remember, the water line is actually going to provide a place of warmth, so any water behind it is going to transmit through. We know the shell is is going to be, you know, an easy source for water to pull through. Now, if you allow that, if it's, let's just say it's saturated, it's going to pull through the mortar bed. We're going to get expansion, contraction, there's going to be pressure on the tile assembly, whatever's there. So if you ask me, I want more than less. So know that cementitious waterproofing always has to be over a colloidal because I don't believe a colloidal is 100% damp proof. Yeah. Um, let's talk about coping
0: because, you know, I, I mean, if we're going here, let's go here. Might as well. you know, so what do you do? To the top of your beam because that is a no, place where no, what do water I do and what do sorry what would you recommend as a technical advisor? Are we gonna get all? We need to get the attorneys here? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not gonna get the attorneys, but I'm sure no, I'm we're gonna kidding. get a lot of nasty uh, <laughs> comments. Um, I'm a big fan of actually wrapping the entire top of the beam with an once we get to the anti fracture portion because we have so many cold joints. Now, I'm not saying typically, and I'm going to just, a benefit of the doubt is that 99% of the shells are shot to proper elevation. Mm-hmm. We're going to install the coping with a minimal mortar bed. Okay? We're not going to raise it by three or five or seven inches. Which we're making be, some assumptions. Here. Assumptions, which <laughs> I have seen. Um, I have actually seen a bomb beam with two feet of block because they shot it so far out of elevation. Um, but we're not going to get into what we've seen. Um, In that case, you've got cold joints. And anywhere where I see a cold joint, in proximity with a water line, I wanna try to stop that water transfer if it happens. So I'm a big proponent of actually wrapping over the top of the beam and and closing all of those joints because those joints are passed for water to travel. Water traveling, and people say, well, it's a pool, water's gonna travel everywhere. You don't want it to travel through what we call past the least resistance or cold mm-hmm. joints. Cause that's gonna start saturating all your beds and then you're gonna end up having problems with moisture expansion, um, salt pressure crystallization, osmotic pressure, we can get into big words but we're not going to. Um, but yes, I'm a big fan of actually wrapping over the complete top, putting the actual mandatory because these the coping to tile interface and the tile to uh, deck interface are supposed to be flexible joints
0: and not just in a, a you know, poured-in-place situation. Uh, you know, the, right. the, the, that top joint in
1: tile is always supposed to be flexible. That top joint, we call that the tile-to-coping, or the tile-to-coping interface, that's the one that's just above the tile line where it meets the coping. On the other side, where the coping, because it's on a vertical plane, we actually want a control joint on the back of that, also a flexible joint, so that that wall can move in its own plane. Now, me wrapping the beam, that's just maybe going a little bit over the top, but as I've looked at it and drawn coping installation details, I truly think that all those cold joints should be encapsulated. Yeah, and I think
0: that, at least in Southern California where I build, I feel like that, the, your deco seal joint or whatever, that's, that's pretty much being adhered to because even the service guys know that you know, that tile's falling off because there's no decal seal
1: joint here. So Right, but we have to stop the nailing in of the, the no. foam. <laughs> yes, 3M makes <laughs> some really good spray foam. It is quicker than nailing. Which, I don't mind that. Yeah, the 3M works great. Don't stick nails in there because the nails end up acting as a conduit for all the pressure that's in the deck to transfer through to the shell. And simple And point world, loading now. I mean that's that's what I call a ten cent mistake that can ru- ruin a fifty thousand dollar pool. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so now we've we've wrapped the bean. Um and we're it, that's I mean we're going over Kibble. We're talking we are. I am talking in a perfect world, this is the way it should be done. Um in that, now we can talk about op- the open ended bottom of the mortar bed at the bottom of a water line. Mm-hmm is that one of the big changes, because P602 does show that basically, any of the damp proofing products used, whether they're a fluid applied or rigid, or cementitious, which would be a semi-rigid to fall into that category, we leave the bottom bed of that mortar bed open. Now that's a natural cold joint if we're plastering up to the bottom of the water line, because gonna leak. it's gonna leak. So what you're gonna get is you're gonna get water behind the tile, water behind the thin set, now into the mortar bed, which actually you know, in my history, we've seen the most expansion contraction in that area. I am a big proponent of pushing um, the tile industry to start looking at encapsulating that mortar bed. Mm-hmm. Now, in doing that, there's gonna be, be some changes because we talk, start talking about compatibility of some of the actual products, the fluid applied, to actually bond to pool plaster. Mm-hmm. So there they would have to have a bond coat put over the top hopefully a good surface profile so that we have something for plaster to bond to. There's like 7,000 red flags there.
0: Uh, We're (laughs) not even going to get into that (laughs) at this point because that's where where your education, where it's sitting down with Genesis or Watershape University or whoever, and actually being in the classroom where you're drawing and that, that's where
1: really diving deep into some of the means and methods is critical for everybody in the industry. And I still think that sometimes when we do these podcasts, I should have a whiteboard so we can, well, I can't draw, but (laughs) I would have you draw, you know, and then we would actually say this this is why, because it's underneath there, but a lot of people don't know it exists. So when a pool's finished and done, you never see what's underneath it. But what's the most important thing for the finish is what's underneath it, whether it's the shell, whether it's the assembly that you've set to, even your choice of pool plaster. Mm-hmm. These are all important facts, but they all rely on proper systems below them. Yeah. So we want to talk about this and we want to show it. And that's what, you know, in these classes that Watershape U and Genesis offer, people will learn and see it and have the ability to, to question, you know, why we think this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's always fun to draw, you know, well, path of water, because people don't understand wicking. Right. So the reason we don't want that mortar bed open-ended at the bottom is because of wicking. And wicking is just a natural transmission of water upwards where you think it's supposed to be dry, but it's actually driving up behind it. Yep, because it's flooded.
0: You it's know, flooded. the bottom of your tile line, it is fully submerged. And if you think about it from a... From an actual construction standpoint, uh, you know, we've all watched pools being plastered and they're taking their trowels and they're pulling it up and they're trying to hang it off the bottom there, but that, that it's, it's fluid. I mean, it's still plastic mud and it's
1: it's dropping. It's unmodified. It's heavy. It does have a high cement content. It's overly wet. But it's, (laughs) I didn't say (laughs) that. We can
0: go a whole different (laughs) way
1: there. Sorry. Yeah, but there is, I mean, honestly, there's no way for it to hang sit without falling off of that that joint. Mm-hmm. So yes, you have a natural path of water transmission right there and if we leave open ended porous structures, we're going to get expansion and contraction. Yeah. Yeah, and mortar beds oftentimes are, you know, hand mixed sand and
0: cement and and then you've started to break down there. So you could have done all of your waterproofing, your sorry, your damp proofing, all of everything including your your anti-fracture, leave the bottom of that open and still have a failure.
1: So we started at what are the some of the most common things that I've seen? I think we should kind of stop this episode at one of the other problems we see is that expansion, contraction, that mortar bed, cause pressure on the tile system which causes failure. That pressure can be, and we talked about the different terms, but that mortar bed expanding will actually cause pressure and pressure buildup and cause delaminations and actual tile failure. Mm-hmm. And efflorescence. And efflorescence. It's, it's which what is, you see most of the time. Which is 99% of the time.
0: Yep. Okay. So we will wrap this one up. And uh, yeah, we, we've we got hours and hours more. Uh, according to the last few episodes that we've done, you guys are really enjoying this. And so we're going to keep going because we do this on the phone. And, and we'll do a day and a half together about this. <laughs> okay. So we're trying to kind of whittle it down and, and make it all... Uh, Makes sense to to everybody. But thanks so much for joining us today and uh, stay tuned for episode four, five, six. See you later.